going to go to Houston to see the uh, aftermath of the um, uh, crush of people at a concert that led to eight deaths. Biden celebrates an infrastructure deal. The Arbery trial opens and there's already controversy over the racial makeup of the jury and opiates in New York State, a new era. Governor Kathy Hochul signed some bills and we talked to an expert on something called arm harm reduction. And finally, we're going to have a story about WBAI Liberation Radio from an unusual source, Richard Armitage. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Sunday, November 7th, 2021. And investigators work today to find out how eight people died in a crush of fans at a Houston music festival. Friends and loved ones mourned the victims and a makeshift memorial of flowers and candles took shape at the site. Apparently, everything went wrong Friday night during a performance by rapper Travis Scott. And the tragedy appears to have unfolded as the crowd rushed the stage, squeezing people so tightly they couldn't breathe. Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner. You know, last uh, last night was uh, tragic on 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 many different levels, uh, and this is a very very active investigation, and we'll probably be at it for for quite some time uh, to, de- to determine what exactly happened. Based on our latest information, you know, eight people are reported are reported dead from from the event last night. Uh, in terms of their ages, uh, one is 14, one is 16, two are 21 years of age, two are 23, one is 27, and one remains uh, unknown at this at this time. So a total of eight uh, that are re- that are reported dead. And that's the mayor of Houston, Texas, speaking yesterday. 13 people remained hospitalized. About 50,000 people were at the sold-out Astroworld Festival, an event founded by Scott. Concert growers said that as a timer ticked down to the start of the show, the crowd pushed forward. Screaming and panic ensued, and people began passing out. As soon as he came out, the wave just like kind of crushed me in, and I was like this. I was being controlled by everybody, and I had to like keep my head up like this like towards the sky so I can breathe. And as soon as the music came on, everyone went crazy. Everyone pushed forward and like you couldn't really move. You'd hear like everyone just saying, get out. I can't breathe. I'm about to pass out. I need you to move. I'm like so sore. I got like bruises all over me. But we were getting really pushed against the fence or the there just wasn't enough security telling people to like, you know, push like push back. back. So there was security there, but just not enough like for if you're expecting a big crowd like that it it was probably like five to one ratio of security yeah like 10 security versus like 300 500 people like it's just they're just gonna run through and Uh, you know like security is usually like on top of their job but like this time on on this one it just felt like almost like security just like was like uh non-existent they even said it themselves but they were like saying oh we were understaffed a little it's like Reportedly, a Los Angeles company was responsible for security staff at the festival. On video posted to social media, Scott could be seen stopping the concert at one point and asking for aid for someone in the audience. Security, somebody help real quick. Concert goer Niara Good had more. All of a sudden, like a wave came through the crowd and you could feel it and you were being forced over. And we kind of were like kind of going back and forth, like trying to stay upright. 
but we're still not thinking anything. We're just like, you know, once again, okay, this is probably normal festival behavior, people trying to get close. And then once it hit one minute, or excuse me, hit the, yeah, the one minute, that's when it really started to go wild. People were pushing back and forth. It calmed down again because he didn't come out right away as soon as he jumped out. And I myself, I couldn't even see him because people were jumping around so much in front of me. But my friend happened to get it recorded. As soon as he jumped out and onto the stage, it was like an energy took over and everything went haywire. In a tweet posted Saturday, Scott said he was absolutely devastated by what took place. He pledged to work together with the Houston community to heal and support the families in need. And in more national news, yesterday, President Joe Biden hailed Congress's passage of his $1 trillion infrastructure package. The House passed the measure 228 to 206 late Friday, prompting prolonged cheers from the relieved Democrats' side of the chamber. Thirteen Republicans, mostly moderates, supported the legislation, while six of Democrats' farthest left members opposed it. But they didn't stop the president from celebrating, along with a swipe towards a failed infrastructure plan touted by his predecessor, former President Donald Trump. Finally, Infrastructure Week. (laughs) I'm so happy to say that, Infrastructure Week. (laughs) Folks, yesterday, I don't think it's an exaggeration to suggest that we took a monumental step forward as a nation. The House of Representatives passed an Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. That's a fancy way of saying a bipartisan infrastructure bill. A once in a generation investment that's going to create millions of jobs, modernize our infrastructure, our roads, our bridges, our broadband, a whole range of things to turn the climate crisis into an opportunity. But we're looking more forward to having shovels in the ground to begin rebuilding America. And for all of you at home who feel left behind and forgotten in an economy that's changing so rapidly, this bill is for you. The vast majority of the thousands of jobs that will be created don't require a college degree. There'll be jobs in every part of the country, red states, blue states, cities, small towns, rural communities, tribal communities. This is a blue collar blueprint to rebuild America. Infrastructure Week has become a running joke in Washington. Apparently, infrastructure was reportedly used as a code for any pie-in-the-sky policy destined to never see the light of day. President Trump's version included a week of meetings and never led to substantive programs. And after Democrats' failure last week to win the governorship of Virginia, some pundits have been blaming progressives like the squad of progressive representatives that includes House Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal for the surprise defeat of Terry McAuliffe and other Democratic setbacks. But the progressives apparently remain strongly committed to passing an even larger bill later this month, a 10-year, $1.85 trillion measure bolstering health, family, and climate change programs. The vote was sidetracked after demands for a cost estimate from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. And in world news, thousands of protesters were seen rallying in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, on Sunday night, supporting the government as rebel armies from neighboring Tigray are on the move. The protesters were seen waving flags and holding anti-Western media banners in Mescal Square in the center of Addis Ababa. One officer at the protest said, as our government called upon us, we are ready to go to war and we know our enemies from the bottom of our hearts, so we will fight till the end. Tigrayan militants are now rapidly advancing on the capital, stoking fears the city could fall. The federal Ethiopian government has rejected recent proposals by Western governments for a ceasefire. 
And thousands took to the streets in Buenos Aires, the capital of Argentina, Saturday to take part in Argentina's 30th Pride March. Many marchers wore costumes and were at times scantily dressed. The rainbow flag, symbol of the LGBTQIO culture, was everywhere in sight. And dance music blared from sound trucks. After a pandemic force, a virtual edition of 2020 Pride, the march returned to the streets of the Argentine capital city center with the slogan, Comprehensive Trans Laws Now, and other demands such as the approval of new laws for the comprehensive response to sexually transmitted diseases and an end to the criminalization of sex workers. And Nicaragua's president, Daniel Ortega, and his wife and vice president, Rosario Murillo, cast their votes in Nicaragua's presidential election today. The Ortegas are running on the ticket of the FSLN political party, widely known as the Sandinistas, a vote the United States State Department says has lost all credibility. Nicaragua's foreign minister responded at a polling place where he voted, we will not be intimidated by their unilateral sanctions and their threats to ignore the elections. There are more than 3,000 voting centers in Nicaragua, and reports are that the vote was peaceful. Ortega's first served as president from 1985 to 1990 before returning to power in 2007. Opponents of Ortega have claimed that they were harassed or forced off the ballot in the run-up to the election. Reportedly, only minor party candidates are on the ballot. In Nicaragua, polls were scheduled to close at 6 p.m. Sunday, and the Supreme Electoral Council said the first partial results would be released around midnight. Provisional vote totals are expected Monday. And prosecutors back here in the United States, prosecutors and defense attorneys on Friday presented dueling portraits of 25-year-old Ahmed Arbery, who was either an innocent black runner fatally shot by three white strangers or a, quote, scary mystery who had been seen prowling around a Georgia neighborhood. In her opening statement, prosecutor Linda Dunikowski said the short cell phone video that stirred national outrage over Arbery's sling offered only a glimpse of the attack on the kid who young man who gave his pursuers no reason to suspect him of any wrongdoing. In this case, all three of these defendants did everything they did based on assumptions. These three defendants committed four felonies against Mr. Arbery. And it all started when Gregory Beckel saw him running down the street. They committed these four felonies in violation of his personal liberty before he finally tried to run around their truck, as you saw in the evidence, and get away from these strangers, complete strangers, who had already told him that they would kill him. And that they killed him. As Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski the two shots, the first reportedly took off Arbery's arm at the armpit, and the second one blasted a hole in his chest. An attorney for Travis McMichael, the man who shot Arbery three times, put the shooting in a much different light, though. Robert Rubin described Arbery to the overwhelmingly white jury as an intruder who had four times been recorded on video plundering around a neighboring house under construction. The evidence shows overwhelmingly that Travis McMichael honestly and lawfully attempted to detain Ahmad Arbery according to the law and shot and killed him in self-defense. What we're asking you to do is hard and it may be unpopular, but we're asking you to recognize your responsibility as jurors 
and being open to the facts and putting aside emotion and listening to the law and applying that and doing your duty. And that was defense lawyer Robert Rubin. Arbery was cut down on February 23rd, 2020, but was ignored. His case was ignored until a cell phone video was leaked showing vehicles cutting off the unarmed Arbery as he ran and then blasting him twice, as reported, with a shotgun. Donikowski said one of the defendants later told police he had heard he had shouted at Arbery, stop or I'll blow your effing head off. Meanwhile, the jury selection process in the trial of the three men has come under intense scrutiny. Despite the racial overtones of Arbery's brutal killing in a large black population in Glynn County where the trial is occurring, only one black person is among the jurors. Superior Court Judge Timothy Walmsley said it appeared biased. Has found that there appears to be intentional discrimination in the panel. Uh, that's that prima facie case. And I guess before I get into this, one of the challenges that I think uh, counsel recognize in this case is the, the racial overtones in the case. We have not been able to escape those discussions with the panel, and, and they've just come up in a lot of different contexts. So you know, this is sort of the continuation of a conversation that I think will continue for a long time with respect to this case and maybe many others. We start getting into this question about race, and again, quite a few African-American jurors were excused through preemptory strikes exercised by the defense. But that doesn't mean that the court has the, the authority to reseat simply again because there's this prima facie case, because we see it. It's, sort of one of those, it's not one of those we see it, therefore it is. There's now additional steps the court needs to engage in. And that was Superior Court Judge Timothy Walmsley. Ben Crump, an attorney for Arbery's father, Marcus Arbery Sr., said in a statement Thursday, it's outrageous that black jurors were intentionally excluded to create such an imbalanced jury. And back in Washington, the White House came out in defense of critical race theory on Friday, despite critics who blamed the GOP's use of the theoretical framework for teachers wanting to address America's racial history in the classroom in a fair and equitable way for the losses of the uh, – for being able to uh, – to defeat Democrats in the elections last week. On Friday, Deputy Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre said, we need to be honest about what's going on. America, as you heard the president say before, is a great country. And great countries are honest, right? They have to be honest with themselves about the history, which is good and the bad. And our kids should be proud to be Americans after learning that history. The president certainly is. Fundamentally, we believe a school's curriculum isn't a federal decision. It's rightly up to communities around the country, the parents, the school, the school board, the teachers, and the administrators. And that means that politicians should not be uh, dictating what our kids are being taught. But we also need to be honest here about what's going on here. Republicans are lying. They're not being honest. They're not being truthful about where we stand. And they're cynically trying to use our kids as a political football. They're talking about our kids when it's when it's election season, but they won't vote for, for them when it matters. And that was the assistant uh, the Deputy Press Secretary for the White House, Corrine Jean-Pierre, critical race theory became a central issue in many elections across the nation earlier this month. Republicans and other far-right wing extremists have been converging on school boards, often threatening and attempting to intimidate school board members into opposing any critical discussion of American history.
And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Last month, New York decriminalized the possession and sale of hypodermic needles and syringes as part of new laws signed by Governor Kathy Hochul. Supporters hope the bills will reduce the number of people who die of drug overdoses. Hochul said the issue of humane treatment of drug users was personal for her. Six years ago, Hochul's nephew, Michael, died of a fentanyl overdose. It was about six years ago when we lost my beloved nephew to addiction. And he started out like many other families experience. He did not set out to be a teenage addict. That was not his goal in life. He was a young athlete. He was outgoing. He was a joy at our family gatherings. Uh, Michael was just had this zest for life. But he cut his hand deeply on a piece of equipment at the delicatessen. Goes to the doctor to heal him, to heal him. And he follows the doctor's directions. Doctor prescribes a teenager a supply of opiate-based prescription drugs to alleviate the pain. The pain continues. Another prescription continues. The next thing we know, he's developed an addiction, and he finds that it's cheaper to acquire the drug that makes him feel better, as his brain chemistry has now changed because it begins to change after a matter of days and weeks where the addiction forms and he starts going to the streets. Streets are cheaper, easier, hides it from his mom for as long as he can, gets into trouble, ends up in jail. His mom has to be strip searched to go visit him in jail in our community. The indignity inflicted on our family for people who still loved Michael but saw that he would become a different person. We actually thought he was starting to turn the corner again what he thought he could handle had been laced with a new form of fentanyl, which was this d- deadly concoction where he thought he could handle it to deal with some stress of the day, despite the fact that he was back in school and he'd actually become a coach for other people in addiction. He started on that path and the fentanyl took him down. His mother found him with the needles in his arms and we buried him a few days later after a wake that drew probably 500 people. I had no idea of the people he had already been touching. That's why this is personal for me. And that is Governor Kathy Hochul describing her personal contact with the opioid epidemic. In recent years, New York has made it easier for people to access naloxone and other opioid antagonists that can prevent deaths from overdose. The state is set to launch an online directory for distributors of opioid antagonists. Maya Salovitz is author of Undoing Drugs, the Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. She was a drug user herself who says she owes her life to an intervention that that addresses the drug, not the drug taker foregoing law enforcement and punishment in favor of helping the drug user. It's called harm reduction. It's a rather weird thing because basically needles have been legal um, for people who participate in syringe exchanges for decades. Um, But police have continued to arrest them even after there was a case in which that was thrown out because you're not supposed to arrest people for things that aren't illegal. Um, But so what happened now is they finally um, decriminalized entirely so that you don't have to get them from a syringe exchange, which was also long overdue because you can legally buy them at drugstores without a prescription and then get arrested for them for possession 
after you legally bought them. Syringe possession has been illegal in New York for so long that police really thought that it is something that would always be illegal. And when that started to change during the AIDS years, they still continued arresting people even after it was legal to buy syringes in a pharmacy and legal to get them from a syringe exchange. And this enforcement was focused um, largely on um, people who are unhoused and people of color. And how come it's taken so long because these drugs were made illegal 100 years ago? There's a whole lot of racism and a whole lot of political agendas that got involved with drugs. Our drug policies have never been set based on the actual dangers of specific substances. They have been set based on panics over particular people using particular substances that the dominant powers wanted to control, basically. What is harm reduction and how did you come to be an advocate for harm reduction? Harm reduction is the idea in drug policy that we should try to stop people from getting hurt rather than try to stop them from getting high. I myself was an IV drug user during the peak of AIDS, and somebody who just happened to be visiting from San Francisco taught me to use bleach to clean my needles to protect myself, and I believe that probably saved my life. I learned later that what she was doing was called harm reduction because the policy we had on drugs at the time I was using was just straight up drug war. And the main idea there is to make the consequences of using drugs as harmful as possible, even deadly, so that it will serve as an example to children who aren't using so that they won't become drug users. This was a horrendous way of treating people because people who use drugs are people and seeing us as instruments to demonstrate by dying that kids should not do drugs it's just a horrible, horrible way of treating any human being. When I was using in the late 80s, at that time, at least half of all IV drug users in New York City were HIV positive. These days, that number is less than 3%. There are counties in the South that have higher numbers of HIV cases in IV drug users compared to New York City. This works. We have shown over and over again that policies like syringe exchange and, and drug decriminalization and treating people with dignity and respect are more effective at getting people better, getting them healthier, keeping them alive, getting them towards stability and even abstinence. They just work better. If it were the case that arrests and criminalization and being tough on people with addiction worked, we would not have the worst overdose crisis in American history right now. Anything like that? It's really important to realize right now that the vast majority of overdose deaths that we're seeing are linked to illegally manufactured fentanyls and not prescription drugs. Our continued crackdown on pain patients who actually need opioids, whether they have cancer or whether they have chronic pain or whether they have end-of-life pain, this is not preventing addiction. We have to focus on why people use drugs, not on cutting the supply. Maya Salowitz is author of Undoing Drugs, the Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. And finally, Colin Powell, the trailblazing soldier diplomat who rose from humble beginnings to become the first black secretary of state, was remembered by family and friends Friday as a principled man of humility and grace whose decorated record of leadership can serve as a model for generations to come. 
Some progressives might remember him as the person who lied about the weapons of mass destruction that helped start the war between Iraq and the United States. Richard Armitage served as the State Department's number two ranking official while Powell was Secretary of State during the Bush administration. Armitage recalled several stories about his relationship with Powell. One was of interest, though, to WBAI and Pacifica Radio listeners. Powell and Armitage apparently spent Saturdays listening to Washington, D.C. Pacifica Station, WBAI's sister station, WPFW. He called it Liberation Radio. Every Saturday afternoon at 5 o'clock, we would listen to WPFW in Washington. This is Pacifica Radio. This is People's Radio. Uh, Don't tell anybody who investigates us for security clearances because this is Liberation Radio, if you will. There was a show at 5 o'clock in the afternoon hosted by Mr. Von Martin, and it's called Caribbeana. And that's one thing the two of us really like, whether it's Bob Marley and the Whalers, and we'll hear more about that later, Iggy Marley, uh, the Swallow, any number of people. So we really had had great uh, one that one music taste. Yes, Ambassador Armitage, it is Liberation Radio. Thanks for that. And that's some of the news from Liberation Radio, WBAW, uh, WBAI and WPFW, our sister station in Pacifica Radio Network in New York. Uh, Sunday, November 7th, 2021, the news is produced. Linda Perry, our engineer is Max Schmid from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.